So we're starting off a new series, I get to kick it off, um, and it's called um, Not Just for Sunday School. So we're doing a whole heap of well-known Sunday school stories, Um, and sometimes we relegate some of these stories just to Sunday school, and we go, "It's it's a nice story to capture the imagination of kids, and then we leave it at that. We don't get any. So what, what we're doing is we're going through a series. We've got a whole heap of these that we're going to be going through. And we're going to be looking at these because we want us to understand that actually all of Scripture is for all of the people of God. And it's not just for Sunday school. So today, as you can see, we're going to be looking at the story in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, how many of you heard this story on Sunday school? Yeah. And how many, how many has heard this story multiple times? Now, this, this story is, is one that just, out of all the stories, it has such a draw for most people. The, 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 the action that goes on in here and the outcome that happens is one that just captures our imagination. And it's a great, great story. And we're going to, I'm going to start reading a bit of it, and then I'm going to have to go back because there's a lot of context to get to this place in Daniel. Daniel is writing this in a very different context to most of the other scripture. And so we're going to read, let's, we start off at verse, chapter 3, I'm going to read... From verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans... Oops. I've got to go before that. Sorry. We're going to go from... We're going to go from the first first verse of chapter 3, sorry. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar set sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counsellors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counsellors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lie, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here we've got this very interesting scene happening where this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the ruler of Babylon. And at that time and in that place, Babylon was without doubt the superpower of that time. There was was no other kingdom that could match them, neither in might nor in splendor. And here they are, this great King Nebuchadnezzar setting up a golden image and he's telling everyone now we're going to worship this. But to understand how we even get to this stage here, we need to go back. And we need to go back to the first chapter of Daniel. And we need to understand why is Daniel even in this place? Why is he even writing about this? And if we go back to the very first verse of Daniel, it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here we have the nation of Israel. Now all the else through the, the scriptures, we see Israel as this chosen, precious nation that God has. And it's God's chosen people and they're in the chosen land and it should be all good. But it isn't. And it's far from good. And in fact, it's even worse than that because it is actually God who is allowing Jerusalem to be captured. Did, did, you, did you hear that? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. How do we get to the place where the promised people, those who were taken out of slavery, brought into their promised land, they had a king like David, the wisdom that we we read about from Solomon, they've had prophets, they've had priests, and yet here they are at a place where God's going, I give you over. What's happened? If we go to Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah was a prophet that warned this very thing. He was the one before the Babylonians even came. Jeremiah warned the people of Israel that this would happen. This is what Jeremiah said. In Jeremiah 22, 3, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey the words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the, mount, the summit of Lebanon. Yet surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut you down They shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Who has the Lord dealt, uh, why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. Jeremiah came as a prophet of warning to Israelites, that they had an opportunity to turn. Now, why did they even need to have this opportunity to turn? You see, the Israelites were morally corrupt. They were seeking after their own welfare. Those in power only sought more, and those who were oppressed were only oppressed more. There was no care, there was no love. The very commandments of God were being put aside. And this was because the belief was we are the chosen people of God. And we are in the chosen land, chosen people in chosen land. Therefore, this is how it should be. And they took this as as a basis for them to be able to do whatever they wanted. They thought, we are here because of us. It is, it is our right to be here. And they wouldn't listen to the prophets. And if we go back to Daniel 9, it tells us that this very thing should not have even been in their hearts. 
In Daniel 9, 4, it says this. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that's driven out the nations before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, the very thing that God was bringing judgment upon him, he had already told them previously, warned them, pleaded with them, do not think you're in here, this promised land. Do not think that you were chosen because of your righteousness. Does it sound familiar? You are here because I have chosen it. And it doesn't have anything to do with you. And yet the Israelites have got to the stage where they believed that nothing would stop them from being able to stay in the promised land. And so when they come and they get taken away, a lot of them are confused, but Jeremiah's warned them. And the interesting thing is you've got these few men, Daniel is one of them, who knows the word of the Lord. See, Daniel was even aware of Jeremiah. And we've got later on, and in fact, the contrast between Daniel and the Israelites' leaders is shown quite remarkably in Daniel 9. And it shows this contrast between the heart of Daniel and the heart of the leaders of Israel. And this is Daniel. He's, at this time, he's in captivities and, and he's in prayer. And this is where he's prayer. He says this, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. See, the difference between what Daniel had, and it actually shows that Daniel's faith was founded upon the very premise that they had to go into captivity. Daniel's faith was based upon the fact the prophets had said, if this is the way you act, you will go into captivity. And Daniel believed that if they did not go into captivity, he would have a crisis of faith. Because the promise promise that the prophets had said is that if you would be immoral, you will go into captivity. If you will think that your righteousness keeps you in the promised land, I will take you out of the promised land. Daniel did not see the captivity of the Israelites as a weakness or a weak moment of God. Actually, he saw it as a fulfillment of what God had promised. And we can see this in Daniel's life because, do you know what? This man goes from strength to strength from this point on. But it's also to be noted that this was not an easy thing to happen. Because we need to understand that this would have been an absolutely horrific time for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four guys would have seen horrific stuff in Jerusalem. And when it was all over, they were taken from their families. 
They were young men, perhaps in their 20s, perhaps younger. They were taken from the only thing they knew. And you can almost imagine that at that time you can see them taken away from their families that they've known, their, their mother and father perhaps there, seeing them walk away in captivity. This is a moment where these men's heart would have been torn apart, been ripped out of their homeland, been taken to a place that is not being called their own. But they went knowing that the promises of God had sent them there. And when they get there, You can see that they've decided in their hearts. And, and we, we don't have a whole bunch of what Daniel would have done. You know, we just have small pieces of it. But sometimes the silent parts are the most interesting for me. You know, because we have, next we have is, is Daniel and standing up with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're standing up to the, to the, um, the, the rulers of that time But there would have been moments along that journey from Jerusalem to Babylon where they would have been together and they would have fellowshiped with one another. And I can imagine them together, praying together and making that choice to say, do you know what, guys, let's, no matter what, let's declare God holy the whole time we're there. Now, there was not even a slight hint of Daniel and, and these the three other guys wanting to be rebellious in any way. Do you know that they were wholeheartedly joining in with this society that they'd been placed into? Not giving in to the the wants and the desires of that society, but not actually standing aloof from it and saying, that is nothing to do with me. They actually were part of it. And the reason for that is, once again, we find in Jeremiah, that Jeremiah writes to the, cap- the, the people the, in captivity, in Jeremiah 29, and he says, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where, you, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So here are these guys. Not only do they believe and know that God has, as Daniel has rightly said, given them into exile, but also they are aware that God is saying, whilst you were in exile, be all there. Build your houses. Have a family. Seek the prosperity and welfare of the place you are living. Be part of society. And these guys took that to the absolute heart. But at the same time, they did not want to compromise one little bit. And they were still in the Old Testament time, so they were still under law. And they were still certain laws that they would deem as a way of setting them physically apart from other people. And so the very first test that comes up to them is that they, at that time, the Babylonians would take the choice uh, young men from the nations they would conquer, and they would bring him into the very heart of Babylon. 
And for three years, I'd give them intensive training. Intensive training in the language and the culture and the laws of, of Babylon. And then what they would normally do is they would then send them back to the nations they'd come from so that they would be fully indoctrinated in the Babylonian ways. And they'd be given position and power and they'd go back to their lands. And it's not too dissimilar to thinking about something like a university where these guys are shoved into this melting pot of all different types of nationalities and languages and they're told to conform to one way. And the con- the, to, to conform is even more than that because the, the name is even taken away from them and a new name is given to them that is a Babylonian name so that they can even know that it's not just that you're in a different place. We're going to try and change your identity. And this is part of what the Babylonians did because it's far easier to have someone on your side and send them back to their people on your side than to try to keep on putting down rebellions. And so this is one of the strategies the Babylonians had. So for three years, they have this intensive training. But not only intensive training, everything's paid for. No student loans. No worry about food. In fact, they get the best food on offer in the kingdom. From the king's table itself, they get it. And the reason for this is so that they would look, because not only was it about being able to comprehend these things, so it was the brightest of the bright that were going to this this Babylonian university, but they also had to look the best. So it was not just about you being smart, you had to actually look good. And so part of the king giving you his food is because he couldn't have you looking scrawny. He couldn't look, you know, you couldn't be thin. You had to look like you had a lot of good food and stuff going into you. You had to look the part. They had the best food, the best wine, the best clothes, the best education that could be supplied. All in an effort to conform them. Now, you don't know that, I don't know, it struck me that the first protest that these guys have is not to do with their name being changed. Do you notice that? Like, I could imagine if someone changed your name, that would be one moment you'd probably go, no, no, I'm not having that. No, that's my name. You can't change that. But, you know, they didn't actually protest that. Which is interesting, and it actually shows, I believe, the depth of which they believe they were supposed to be in that society. The first protest they have is a really subtle one. Really subtle. Just feed us vegetables. We're not going to take anything from the king's table, neither meat nor wine. And the reason Daniel doesn't go into explaining the reasons for it, but if we look at the Old Testament, we can kind of garnish perhaps that it was to do with Food offered to idols. But it doesn't actually explain why they refuse the wine, because that's not forbidden. Other than the fact that they just wanted to declare that they were different. But not in a way that was to offend or to put anyone else in danger at this point. And so Daniel went to the chief eunuch and he says to him that we only want to have vegetables. And this is what the chief eunuch says to him. I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should we see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So here's Daniel coming before him. Now, this man, Daniel, he must have been extraordinary to be able to come up to the chief eunuch, the guy who's responsible for all these 
university students and say to him, we want to do something different. And for that chief eunuch to actually trust him enough to say, actually, I fear being killed for that, Daniel. Not just, no, go away, but is, uh, is willing enough to open up to Daniel. I, I trust him enough to say, I fear my life if I let you do this. So Daniel, what does he do? He goes to one of the lower, those under that chief eunuch. He goes to him <laughs> and he says to him, let's try something out here. Let's, let's do a trial basis. Say for 10 days, don't tell anyone, but just feed us vegetables. And if after 10 days we look worse than the other students, then we'll put this aside. But if we look better, then let's be how we go forward. And so here Daniel is, once again, trusting that actually to set God apart as holy and as something that he will pursue in his heart, he's willing to put God to the test. He's willing to say, God, I believe you've called me into this land. I believe you've called me to holiness. I believe you've called me to be a witness and different in this society. I'm stepping out in faith now. I'm going to trust you. And so Daniel, and it seems such a small thing, but Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego... They all only have vegetables for 10 days. And after that, they come out looking better. And God comes through. Now, this is not trying to say, be a vegetarian. That's not what the message is about at all. What it's saying is that they had dedicated their heart to God. They had chosen that God would be set wholly apart first in their hearts. And to do this, they wanted to find opportunity to show the reality of God to people around them. And this is the first opportunity they had to show the reality of God to probably the most polytheistic nation at that time. And they wanted to show that there's only one true God. And so they do this first little step, and in that, God comes through. And you can imagine what it would have been like. I I think about this, uh, you get these little moments, and these guys would have run back together and they go, did you see what God did? Isn't that amazing? Do you know, I, I knew he would, but it's so much better now that he has. I knew we were supposed to be here. I knew there was a purpose for us bringing that he brought us here. I knew that we were supposed to be in Babylon at this time. He's starting to show us something. And you can imagine them just starting to believe God's got something here for us, something bigger for us to be doing here. That's not just to be vegetarians something more God's got. And the story goes on, and we don't know the length of time, but there comes another opportunity to present themselves as apart from the other gods, those who are not like the others. And this opportunity comes because King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And back in those times, dreams were of great importance. In fact, they had whole uh, libraries of books and people dedicated to studying past dreams and interpretations of them so that when there would be a new dream would come, that they would be able to look up these, what similar dreams had happened before and what was interpreted so that they could then tell the interpretation of this dream. But you see, Nebuchadnezzar was not a normal king. He was a little bit, I don't know, emotional it was quite extreme. And I think in part of it, he was a very fearful and insecure king. And so most kings would tell them his dream. Now, he didn't have one of them. He had many of them. He had, this dream was reoccurring. And there is historical precedence where those who would interpret the dreams, the the, the Chaldeans and the magicians and the enchanters would use these things to manipulate the king. And I think that Nebuchadnezzar knew this. 
And in fact, I think Nebuchadnezzar was more against the religious people than we could ever, uh, that we, than, than we ever know. And I think part of it was that in those days, the religious structure was actually above the king. And, and in fact, every year, what they would do is they would humiliate the king once a year to show that he is beneath the religious leaders. So once a year, Nebuchadnezzar would have to stand outside the city of Babylon and the priest would come and slap him in the face. And this was to show the people that not even the king is above the gods. Not even the king is above the religious structures. And I think, I th- this is, this is, there's no evidence for this, but I think it wasn't long after Nebuchadnezzar has been struck in the face that he's had these dreams. And he's going, there's no way I'm giving these religious people an opportunity to manipulate this kingdom. And so he says, no, if you are messengers of the gods, you tell me the dream. And of course they can't. They say, you you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. No one does that. And he says, if you can't do it, then you're all dead. You're all dead. Now, Daniel's not here at this stage, but he, obviously he's one of these um, who are in the, the wise man. He's been elevated into this position because of the previous things that have happened. And he's one of those guys whose head's on the chopping block. So Daniel goes to the chief guard, the guy who was going to go around lobbing heads off, and he says to him, can you give me... Uh, first he says... Why, why is it that the king is so furious? And he tells him, because of this dream cannot be interpreted. And Daniel goes, I will have the interpretation for the king. Give me time. Now here's this guy, and, and, and I think this is really critical to understand, because in this moment, this is a moment that solidifies something in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because Daniel... And these guys, they have in their hands either death or God comes through and they live. But at the moment, if they do nothing, they're dead. So Daniel in boldness steps out and says, I will interpret it. And then immediately he goes back to his friends and says, pray, please pray. I've I've said something and now we really need God to turn up. And they go and pray, and that very night, God gives a very dream to Daniel. And he goes into the king, and he tells the king his dream, and this is a dream of the statue, the head of gold, and so forth. And the king is amazed, and he he actually bows down and worships Daniel. But Daniel will have none of it. He says, it's not me. It's, It's not as if I've got any wisdom. It's not as if I can interpret. I'm not interpreting. I'm just speaking the words that God gives me. There's no interpretation here. And you can, once again, you can imagine what happens when Daniel goes back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can you imagine? He goes, guys, guess what happened? Guess what happened? God came through again, and we've been spared. Now, I know that in that moment, something solidified in their hearts that God would come through no matter what. And so now we get to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we need to know that this is not just a a flash-in-the-pan story. This is a story that is very much grounded in history. There is a global history going on. This tiny little insignificant, in lots of regards, state of Judah being overrun by the greatest military might of that time. In most people's eyes, that was nothing but logical. But in Daniel's eyes, that was not logical. That was God-ordained that it should happen. And now that they're placed in here, they're looking for opportunities to declare the glory of God and to show that God is glorious. And here is this moment where the king of kings of that time, this Nebuchadnezzar who was above all else, is actually worshipping the God Most High. What an amazing opportunity that these guys have taken. And then we, the story goes on 
that not long after this, Nebuchadnezzar gets in his head. Once again, I think it's a fearful, insecure guy. So he gets in his head, I need to build a statue of gold. I'm not going to just make the head gold. I'm going to make it all gold because my kingdom will not end. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was like many other people in power. They're afraid of losing it. And here he is setting up a golden image. Now, we don't know what this image looked like. We don't. Perhaps perhaps it was looked a bit like Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know. Seriously, we don't know. But all we know is that it was all gold. Not mixed metals, but all gold. And not only was it all gold, but Nebuchadnezzar told all of his officials that they must come and they must bow down and worship it. And he had two ways of making this happen. He had the carrot and the stick. He had this furnace burning, all heated up, ready for those who might think, uh, or who might go, oh, I'm a little bit sick, I might take, a, might take a day off. The furnace was there so that you would turn up. The furnace was there so that you would fear the king. But then his other weapon was music. Because music has a way of enchanting and, and in some ways lowering our resistance to things. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I find sometimes there's those songs that you catch yourself just getting caught up in and singing, and the, you, know, you, you love singing the great songs. And, and I'm just saying, like, like secular songs, you know, they're just a fantastic tune. And then you stop and read the words, and you're like, that's a load of rubbish. But it doesn't stop you singing the song and it doesn't stop you, you know, going along with it because music can somehow have a, have a way of numbing our mind to the words that are being spoken. And I think this is part of what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He had the fear of that they'd be killed and he also had the lulling them in, that seducing them in to bowing down as well. And so here we have this moment where they all are to bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't see these three guys not bowing down. It's other guys who do. And there's this, this sense that they're, they're also seeing that these guys are being elevated a bit too quick. You know, they're getting favor. And Daniel was not there. And we don't know why Daniel wasn't there at that stage. But it does say it's only the province of Babylon. So Daniel perhaps could have been elsewhere at that point. But what we do know is that there was a lot of jealousy towards the Jews. Particularly these four guys. And so these guys come up to the king and he says, and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, those Jews, they're not bowing down to your idol. And Nebuchadnezzar, in rage, in anger, he calls them over. And it says this, Nebuchadnezzar, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lie, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is a God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now that phrase is a key point here. Because he's telling him to bow down and worship an idol, but he's saying, who's going to deliver you out of my hands? So what he's actually saying is, if you will not bow down and worship me, Who's going to deliver you out of my hands? He didn't say who's going to deliver you out of that God you're worshipping, but it's me. I am the ultimate. I am above all religious structures. He's shown that previously. I'm above all people. It is me, I, Nebuchadnezzar, you will worship. And who will deliver you from my hands? 
And the response is amazing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I mean, what boldness is this, huh? Solidified in what has happened in the past, solidified in their knowledge that God has placed them in this culture, in this time, in this society for this moment. Here is their opportunity once again to show the glory of God. We don't need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set before us. So this is opportunity right here. And we can't, can't, we mustn't think that this was a moment that they made that decision right there before the king. This decision was made the moment they heard the announcement that all people had to come and bow down before this image. I can tell you right now the anguish these guys would have gone through well before they got in front of the king. We know that they were encouraged to take family. And we, they may have even had wives and children themselves at this stage. And they would have had to say to their children and to the wife, today we cannot bow down as we have been commanded. We are going to stand up and it will require us to lay aside our own life. We must not deem our life of greater value than honouring the holiness of God. And they made this decision before they even got to the ceremony. And you can imagine their friends would have gone, come on guys, this, this, don't, don't throw it away now. There's so much more God can do through you in the years to come. Just imagine, you're only just starting to get up into those positions where you can influence all of Babylon. Don't throw it away now. You can imagine the pressure that would have been on these guys. The heartache and the the turmoil they would have had to go through just to get to that place. But they had made in their hearts a decision. Already that was decided. They decided together, so when they got there, they didn't need to answer the king on this matter. We don't need to answer you on this matter, king. We already decided in our hearts that God is worth it. Whether he saves us or not, that's up to him. We do not demand what God does. We are not like you demanding that people bow down and worship. Our God will do what our God will do, but we will always honour him. And in this moment, the king Nebuchadnezzar was so furious, and it even shows a gap between one who is ruling out of fear and one who rules out of love because he didn't even care for his own subjects. He tells them to stoke that fire hotter. And so much hotter did it become that those who were throwing the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into it, they were consumed themselves, and the king did not care. Only that someone was defying him, and they must be taught a lesson. But I want you to note something important here. God did not save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. He saved them in the fire. You see, God does not save us from right decisions. He doesn't save us from having to make moral, godly decisions. He doesn't save us from making those decisions, nor does he he doesn't save us from the actual outworking of what those decisions will bring. God saves us in the moment. See, these guys had made a choice in their hearts long before they stood before the king, long before they had to be thrown into the furnace. And it's in these moments that we see that actually God, in his sovereignty, in this moment, decided that he himself would go down and be with these three men in the furnace and save them. 
and what a witness it brought. But there are many, many, many other times through history where there are Christians who were burned at the stake and burned and God did not turn up. But as it was with the, through the centuries, and I, I think of those three men in, in, the, in the 16th century in, in Oxford where they were burned at the stake, and as they were being burned, they say, may we set alight a candle in England this day that will never go out. These are men who have resolved in their hearts that they have made a decision long before the decision was presented to them. You know, we are in a time of the world where persecution is increasing, it's not decreasing. In fact, according to studies that they've done, they believe that in the years between the year 2000 and 2010, that 270 people, Christians, 270 Christians were martyred every 24 hours. Over a million people martyred for their Christian belief in 10 years. See, we need to make the decision before. We need to make that resolution in our heart that the holiness and the worthiness and the glory of God is worth it well before we get to that point where we are confronted with a decision to make. We decide now and we leave the rest to God. I'm going to finish with a a story about a, a man who was, during the Soviet communist, was in one of the slave camps that they had in Siberia. And he was cast into that camp because he was teaching children the Bible. So for teaching little children the Bible... He was cast into a labor camp for the rest of his life. Or until the communists, uh, the Iron Curtain fell. And he was asked, in a, in a, in a guy who was talking to him, and, and he's telling his story, and, this, and he says to into the man who was interviewing him, do you think you could have survived that slave camp, and the, and the man interviewing him stumbles and says, oh, no, I, perhaps I don't think I could. And this Russian man who had survived the concentration camp there, that slave Siberian camp, said, yeah, neither could I. I was a man who was afraid to see my own blood let alone another. But the one thing I learned in this camp is God doesn't save us from theoretical trials. He saves us from real trials. And he came out of that camp knowing that in theory, God is just a theory. But in practice, God is all there. And we are in a privileged place where we don't have those choices of life and death presented to us like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we need to resolve in our hearts. So when those choices come up, whether we choose to honor God, where we choose to be ones who will declare his righteousness above all else, we need to decide now. We will choose Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior now above it all, and when the time comes, whether he steps in and saves us from the persecution, the trials, and the fire, or not, he's still worthy of it all. Jesus sums this up in Luke 14. And he says this, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This word hate is just to say, put Jesus first, everything else goes second. Okay? So we must decide in our hearts this day that Jesus is first in all things. I am second. You guys are second. Jesus is first. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this truth that we see through your scriptures. That you prepare long, long before we come to that moment of crisis. And you are gentle and kind and loving and you will warn us and you will come alongside us and you will show us your goodness over and over again so when the time comes, we will just be able to rest in your goodness. And then others will see and they will see and declare that you are good and you are God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be a people who would declare right now that you are first, we are second. Where you lead, we choose to go. Where you have placed us, we choose to be all there. Knowing that you save us in the trial. Know that you deliver us in the trial. In Jesus' name, amen.